WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is Impact's one-hour discussion of news, events, and organizations within MSU's community. And now, this week's Exposure. It's Stephanie, and today on Exposure, we have my co-host for the first time ever. Hey, everybody. It's George. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. Yeah, and we also have another guest. We have Dewey. He is one of the co-directors of Mid Michigan's National Songwriter, or, sorry, Nashville's Songwriters Association International. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> so thank you so much for coming. Um, do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and what got you involved with music? Sure, yeah. My uh, family's have a background in music. My mom with organ in the church when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. My brother played music, and and so it just kind of got into it. My dad played accordion up in the thumb. For all you thumbers listening up there, you probably <laughs> heard the polkas back in the 60s, or 50s even. And um, anyway, so it just seemed part of our family. I got into playing mandolin when I was 14, got a guitar when I was 16 uh, from Santa Claus, and uh, just kind of moved on from there. And I'd buy instruments and uh, sell instruments and try different things out. You know, you know, kind of how you do, you know, test things out. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and so I just ended up uh, finding out that I really enjoyed writing lyrics. And I just put my two passions together for words and music. And, and here we are today. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's awesome. So what brought you to be a part of the National Songwriters Association? Well, just, it's correct, it's Nashville, but oh, we, we, that's oh, all right. I keep we, messing that up. <laughs> that's okay, we can call it NSAI for short, you're probably yes. hearing me say. But um, a year and a half ago, um, I was down in Nashville for a conference, and I started uh, talking to them. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, this is about two years ago. And uh, I found out, okay, this sounds like a great inspiration for me. Because I used to run a songwriter's workshop in Williamston at Six String Place right. for, for five years. Mm-hmm. And that got to a point where I wanted to expand more. Mm-hmm. And it was a great group of guys. I, I still uh, you know, play with those guys and, and uh, sing with them and stuff. But I wanted to try and expand it, get to a bigger, uh, bigger group that had a connection to Nashville. So I heard about NSAI. I joined, went down and visited with them last April, and I said I'd like to start a chapter here uh, in the mid-Michigan area because the only one that they had was in southeast uh, Michigan by Detroit area, Ypsilanti. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they said, okay. So I went through a lot of hoops, a lot of reference letters, sending yep. in songs <laughs> and all that. And, uh, uh, yeah, in January they granted us this chapter, and so we're, we're – Thrilled to have had our first meeting in uh, January, this past January 2019, mm-hmm. and um, it was excellent. A lot of people coming just to see what it's about, which is what right. we want, and we figure uh, there's going to be a lot of people just showing interest at first, but then they'll start to uh, sign up as members, we're hoping, and, and join join the group, because it's really, I, it's done so much for me in so many different ways in my songwriting. Right. So, so for those that are unaware of what NSAI does, what would you tell them for new members and everyone else? Sure. Like, what does it bring to, you know, Michigan, for example? Right. Okay. The first thing is that it's a 
advocacy. Uh-huh. Uh, so it advocates for the songwriter. So for established songwriters who have songs out there streaming, mm-hmm. that's a great thing for them because they're getting more money for your songs with the legislation that they're going through and they, yeah. they're in D.C. and all that. Right. Um, the other thing for songwriters kind of in my area where we've been writing for a while, but we we need more guidance They've got uh, songwriter experts down there that you can either do it online, send them songs online for evaluations. You can just send lyrics if you don't write the music yourself and just say, hey, you know, I got these lyrics. And they're mostly from a commercial perspective where they want to guide uh, writers into a uh, what, what commercial writing is. Having said that, if you send a song down to them to be evaluated, which, by the way, you get 12 of these evaluations for your yearly membership every year. Okay. So, gotcha. Uh, uh, so when you when you send them down, you could either say, evaluate me as I'm just having fun with this. Or you can say, uh, I would like another artist to record this. Or this song's mm. ready. I want this to be uh, ready for airplay. Uh, what do you think of this? So it's got all different levels. Yeah. So, so it, it's like mentorship, but also collaboration. And advocacy as well. So it sounds like a songwriter's best friend. It, oh, it is. And, <laughs> and, and the biggest thing, well, I don't know if it's the biggest thing, but one thing I love about it is very inspiring. Yeah, uh, I bet. That, that small little group in Williamston that we were in, that was very inspiring. It, it, it uh, gave me the, well, I, for lack of a better term, the inspiration to keep writing and writing more. Uh-huh. Um, and this has even tripled that inspiration in me in being a part of NSAI. So in so, all the people I've been meeting. What do your meetings look like? So when someone shows up to a meeting, what can they expect and what do they want to get out of it? Their meetings are pretty generic as far as set up the same way is that we have a networking where you come in, you start meeting people at the mm-hmm. beginning. Uh, for our first meeting in January, we had everyone introduce themselves, uh, you know, give their background. All right. And we'll, we'll probably have do that to a limited extent as we uh, continue to grow, um, but uh, – uh, then after that, what we do is we show videos that Nashville, the Nashville office sends to all the chapters, mm-hmm. and they're specifically just for uh, chapters to be able to show. Once you're a member, you can also view all the the um, videos from the past, and these videos are about uh, what is the uh, the music business, you know, different aspects of the music business. Um, co-writing is the one for this month. Uh, it's also about uh, how to write lyrics, yeah. how, how to... Uh, pick out new melodies, uh, just thousands of different topics. And thousands is an exaggeration, but hundreds of different topics and videos they have. Um, now, I forgot what the question was. Oh, right. So then we see the video. <laughs> You're fine. We see the video, and then uh, we discuss that a bit. And then it's uh, the last half of the uh, meeting is essentially jamming with the original songs. And it's amazing the talents and the different styles that are, are there. So. Um, we meet at the MSU Community Music Center School um, mm-hmm. on Hagron Road there, and uh, yeah, it's like right across from some of the dorms there. On, exactly. On campus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's it's a great place. They're very uh, accommodating and and mm-hmm. very nice in helping us set it up. And uh, yes, we meet there, and we hope that you folks can join us out there. Anyone that's interested in songwriting or learning about songwriting. Sure. What time? What times are? Are you all there? I would love to say we've got a set time every month. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, we are meeting on Saturdays from 1 to 4 once a month. And um, our next meeting is in April. Okay. Uh, April 13th from 1 to 4 p.m. Okay. 
awesome. Yeah, and so yeah, um, and I'll be going. Actually, me and my co uh, co coordinator, Chris Welshin, she lives up in the Thumb area. Uh, we're both going down to uh, Nashville next week, or, or yeah, next week for uh, songwriting training at mm-hmm. uh, the uh, what do they call the Tin Pan South songwriting seminar for two days, and then we're doing coordinator training for for uh, you know, our chapter as well on right. the following day. So, yeah, I'm looking oh. forward to that. Wow, that's yeah. exciting. Yeah, it sure is. Awesome. Okay. So, well, hey, for everyone tuning in really quick, uh, you're tuning in to WDBM. This is Exposure. And uh, I did have one quick question, actually, not to jump on you, Stephanie. No, but um, Just talking kind of specifically about, like, Dewey's Ditties in, in particular, like, it seems like there's such like an amalgamation of different genres and musicians and all these creative minds coming together. How does that come and impact you as a professional? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, Dewey's Ditties is a off- is a little company. We didn't talk about that yet, right? Okay, no. Yeah. Okay. I'm an old man. Sometimes no, you're fine. <laughs> I okay. jumped the gun a little bit. So you're all right. Dewey's Ditties came about from uh, it's a small little music production company that I have, small business, mm-hmm. and I just. I, I joined a couple jingle writing contests, and um, I I won a, a big one, my first one in uh, 2011 in uh, Nashville. I was at the Hard Rat Cafe, the, the five top, uh, uh, I guess, submissions for this uh, contest were sent down to uh, Nashville. They, they put us up for a week in a nice hotel in there. Anyways, long and short of it was um, Trace Atkins, uh, the country music artist, he uh, picked me as the grand prize winner for my song wow uh so yeah so that was great so i was in the studio with him for a few days and or, or for a few hours i mean mm-hmm. but but the reason i mentioned that is because that was my inspiration uh, after i won a couple more jingle contests uh to uh start it up i said well if you know people like you know what i'm putting out there and i'm winning these contests why not try a, you know send, start a little business so i've i've done I've done a few jingles. I've done some uh, Michigan 4-H uh, jingles, a mm-hmm. jingle for them, yeah. and uh, Twister's ice cream, Mooville ice cream. Yeah, that's not uh, Mooville. I'm from Nashville, so I was oh, like, oh, oh very cool. good. Yeah, yeah. So we got the Nashville connection going here. Right, yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Just so you know, this is Nashville, Tennessee Songwriters Association, not Nashville, Michigan. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's important to distinguish in Midwest Michigan. That's why I was like, wait a minute, I thought you were from Michigan. <laughs> no, right, <laughs> I was like, no. I'm confused. Um, but kind of like backing up a little bit, we talk about how there's a variety of <laughs> different types of genres out there. And so how does NSA, NSAI, sorry, it's lots of, lots of letters. No, you got it now. <laughs> NSAI help like support musicians from all of the different genres, as well as like picking it all in one, especially with your chapter, like there's meetings and everyone has different music tastes. How do you incorporate all of them? Right. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, one thing is that when we do send in our songs down there, you can choose what genre you're mm-hmm. talking about. There's numbered evaluators, so it's they, they don't want to give the evaluator names, of course. Right. Um, and so you can choose from, there's like 15 or 20 different evaluators um, by number, and then they tell you what genre you want. So they've got everything from pop, gospel, Christian. Um, so you can kind of choose that way. Uh, so they support all. And the other thing is writing good lyrics is writing good lyrics. Um, yeah. It, 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 if it doesn't, you know, speak to you, right. it's not going to speak to everyone else. And if you're doing a kind of a so-so job, you say, okay, well, that's done. That's good enough. That's not good for any genre. Uh, right. Uh, so you want to, they train you 
to and teach you uh, and inspire you to write to where every line, every word is not wasted. Because you, you figure like a two and a half, three minute song, you've got to tell a story Absolutely. or get your point across and it's got to be repeated. Right. And you've got to do that in, it, it's like a novel in two and a half, three minutes. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's amazingly fun. It's very frustrating and fun all at the same <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I, I love think it. All, I'm, a, I'm addicted to it. <laughs> all creative things are definitely frustrating, but also amazing at the <laughs> same time. Yeah. rewarding. Yes, right. yeah, yeah. Yes, my wife does find me frustrating. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But also with NSAIA, um, there's a lot <laughs> We're of... trying here, folks. <laughs> there's a wide variety of people that write music. And so is it like a set? group of people can any age come can any anyone come is this just open to everybody yeah we have uh everyone from uh r- the ones i've been meeting with even the five years before the group mm-hmm. i was running williamston uh high school to um uh, up to their younger 80s it really doesn't matter yeah if you're if you're interested in songwriting and you uh, think it's worthwhile and want to pay the membership uh and you think you can get inspired by us? It's it's well worth it. Doesn't matter your age. Oh. Uh, you don't even like I said. You don't even need to play an instrument because there's people there that you can co-write with, or you know. And also, I just want to let you know, co-writing, which is a very important part of songwriting, right. um, you don't have to co-write, obviously, but it, it, it takes your writing to the next level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've written with a gentleman in Nashville. Never met him in my life, but he's a part of NSAI. Yeah. NSAI. Okay, now you got me doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and it. and you, you, once you are a member, you can get on the member profiles and listen to all their song or the songs that they post for their NSAI profile. And anyways, that's you know, and then you can have forums. And that's how I met this gentleman. And uh, yeah, we co-wrote a song together, and it was fantastic. So there's so many benefits to it. Right. So with technology advancing, there is a lot of music that's being streamed. So how does NSAI help support that, but also make sure that artists and songwriters do get what they deserve? They do get the money and the recognition that they put in. Well, I, I am not a lawyer. And I, <laughs> and I also I have one song streaming, but it's not, it's not I think it may be two cents so far. Actually, I, I'm lying, maybe 11 cents so far. Um so I don't I don't pay attention too much mm-hmm. to all that, but sure. uh, there was just some legislation that was passed, and they're trying to push through now about because the songwriters do not get much money for their right. streaming. It's really oh right yeah. There was one gentleman who um, uh, Josh Kern. He uh, co-wrote the song with um, Dad Gummit. I better not say which song because I can't remember. Anyways, it was the a insert song here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a multi um, million, yeah, exactly, a multi um, million seller for song, and he got over he got fifteen hundred dollars for streaming royalties on it, and it was played literally millions of times and still being played. Yeah. And so uh, you're not going to be able to get these good writers to stay in it if if uh, you know things like that happen. So I'm not at that tier yet. I do it just. I, if I ever get a song cut, that'd be fantastic. But um, that's not my driving force to doing it. So. Gotcha. Well, it's definitely, you know, it's the storytelling, which you talked about earlier. It's how you get to share your per- opinion and your perspective with everybody else and how people can relate to it. And that's kind of a really cool thing about songwriting. Oh, yeah. And if they don't like it, they can just turn it off, right? <laughs> they don't <laughs> yes. like my thing. Yes. So is there anything else you'd like to mention about NSAIA just to let people know more of what you're doing? 
Now, I'd just like uh, people, if they're really interested in songwriting or think they might even be interested in songwriting, to um, give me an email, send me an email, give me a call, uh, or Krissa. And I assume there's some way we could have some contact information posted somewhere or no? Yep. Okay. Yep. So if you look at impact89fm.org slash exposure, we will have this po- this interview posted there. Yes. And there'll be the information about that. Mm-hmm. Hot dog. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun, people. Don't be shy. Come and see what we're all about. Well, sweet. All right. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks for having me. I had a great time today. Yeah, yeah. we did too. Thanks right. so much, Dewey. Hello everyone, I'm Stephanie and today on Exposure we have the opportunity to talk to some people from Snares to Wares. They help create these, I don't know how to describe them, but they're uh, wire art sculptures um, in the shape of giraffes, lions, and elephants. Thank you. So they create these wire sculptures and they're here to talk to you all about what they are doing. So you guys want to introduce yourselves here? Sure. So my name is Anthony and uh, this is my first year with the organization, and I'm also a member of the class that is offered at Michigan State. My name is Jazz. I'm also a part of the class, and this is my first semester working on the project as well. Um, my name is Abby. I'm the Outreach and Engagement Director of um, the Snares Wears Initiative, and I help coach um, students in the class. Awesome. So can you tell us a little bit about this class and your guys' project? Absolutely. So Snares to Wears Initiative is both a nonprofit organization partnered with Michigan State University and also a class offered here, as, as Abby and I are students in it. Um, so when we look at conservation in Africa, there's a major problem that is occurring, which is subsistence poaching. Subsistence poaching is poaching that is not just um, people looking for high profits, but instead people that are so desperate and so impoverished that poaching is the only livelihood that they can conduct, that can have to feed their family. It's definitely a different point of view than what we're used to hearing. You know, hear poachers and you automatically think, oh, no, these horrible people, why are they killing animals? But it's not necessarily the case. Not at all. Yeah, that perception definitely dominates the media, but this is not really, that's not the um, uh, type of poaching that we kind of deal with. Um, subsistence poaching is the... Um, is the majority of poaching that goes on in, in Africa. Um, and it's one of the biggest conservation issues of, of the 21st century. Wow. So how do you guys go about dealing with this or helping support this issue? So what Snares to Wears is doing is not just addressing conservation from looking at animals, but also the human issue as well. So what we look to do is build capacity in regions such as Uganda and to give these people a income source and a livelihood so that they don't have to resort to poaching anymore. So in essence, snares to wear is kind of uh, att- attacks the root of the problem um, versus kind of monitoring and the other like enforcement issues that you see out in the media for like big game poaching. Yeah, that's definitely important. So how do you guys go about being like empathetic to this and problem solving? Because it's kind of something that we don't understand as well being from America because we do have more privileged and we do we don't have poaching as much in our country so how do you guys go about being empathetic as well as solving this problem absolutely so we talk about this in class all the time by no means should we say that we have all the solutions and no way should we 
be trapped in the white savior complex. That's not what mm-hmm. we're doing. Instead, what we want to do is implement solutions that honestly extend from the people themselves in these regions. So in class, we're currently working on a survey that will be passed out in a village in Uganda so that people there can write suggestions on how the class and the organization can work towards giving them supplies that they need and also distribute um, wares and products that they are creating to help give them income. And are there ways, like, how do you make these sustainable? So not just helping one person, but helping many generations. So to make these sustainable, that's a really great great question. So what we want to do is not give them a handout, but a hand up. And what we mean by that is we want to give them a way to create income, even if we aren't there. So how we're actually building capacity in this in regions such as Uganda is a, a poacher would normally burn a tire, believe it or not, down and take wire from that. And then they would create a trap that they would put in a national park, potentially risking their life, um, their life to place it there. And when they are done placing these traps, they'll have to come back to their home village where they often are seen as a criminal if they are found out as being a poacher. What Snares the Wares is doing is is collecting those snares that are found without wilderness areas and taking them out of the parks so that animals can't get caught by them and then reusing that material and giving the villagers a livelihood. So villagers in these regions through Snares to Wares are creating sculptures such as lions, such as elephants, such as giraffes out of collected, reused snare wire, which then snares to wares can sell to people in the West. And by creating their own artwork, they're given a livelihood and they can pass that skill generation after generation to create money and create um, a, a job and livelihood for how many generations they need to. And how do you guys go about communicating with these people? Because sometimes there's a language barrier and, you know, we're here and they're there. Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges we do face is kind of bridging that disconnect between us and them. Um, uh, we, our uh, co-director, Tutilo uh, Mundumba, is actually from Uganda. Um, so we are actually in contact with him and uh, our lead conservationist, is her, her name is Sophia, and she's from Uganda. Um, so we have people in the field and in the village, not the village, the community we work in, um, all year round. Um, so I'm in contact with people to help ship the art over here. That's what I help do. Um, so, yeah. And if people are interested in purchasing this artwork, where do they go to do that? They can go to our website at snarestowares.org. Awesome. So just to remind our listeners, these are some students from Snares to Wares, and you're listening to WDBM East Lansing. So how did you guys get involved or interested with this project? I received um, an email from my advisor talking about the class, and it seemed um, exactly what I was looking for in a class. I'm about to graduate as a senior, and throughout my undergrad, I've gained so many skills in terms of, you know, 
management, business, but I never really got to apply those skills in a classroom setting. So when I learned that this class is focusing on wildlife conservation, which is what I'm extremely passionate about, and I get to apply my knowledge that I've gained all throughout my undergrad into actually managing a nonprofit and getting credit for it, I knew it's something I wanted to be a part of. Absolutely. And what about the rest of you guys? Um, I was kind of in the unique position where when I started last year, the first year that the class ran, um, I was the only freshman involved. So I was at this point in my life where it was very um, pivotal for me to be be incorporated in a class that was interdisciplinary, um, which was made up of a bunch of different majors, um, and kind of given this opportunity to just kind of run with an idea and make hope it would be successful. And it was incredibly successful. There was not really a there were not really set boundaries of what we could and could not do. There was no like directed syllabus outlining our um, outlining what we had to do. Um, so we really had a lot of flexibility and freedom, and that was something that was very um, compelling as a as a student uh, stepping outside of the traditional classroom setting and given the ability to work on something that otherwise you probably would have never had to. Um, a lot of students don't get the opportunity to study abroad. Um, I've been lucky enough to, but um, most of the students, a lot of students can't. Um, but being able to make a difference um, in a in a community that is thousands of miles away is something mm-hmm. really um, special. And I think that's more things like this should be offered on campus. Absolutely, it's definitely amazing to be a part of something that you can help other people, especially not just here in the U.S. but elsewhere. And then Anthony, why did you join this? Very similar to the other stories given. Um, I joined Snares to Wares, one, because I'm one of those students that probably will never be able to study abroad. So to be able to help a community and to have real-world impacts while still being in East Lansing, Michigan, is an opportunity that I absolutely could not pass up. And on top of that, Snares to Wares is a classroom setting that is revolutionary. It's it's probably the only one offered, at least in Michigan, and the ability to collaborate with students that are from different um, backgrounds and different disciplines is a really rewarding experience because you learn so much. You feed off each other in a way that when you're in a silo of a lecture hall with students, not a hundred other students that know the exact same thing and the exact same classes that you've been in, that, that, that kind of learning is, is, I think, lending itself not very well to the modern setting and snares to where's is. Yeah, like um, I'm a fisheries and wildlife student and I'm Anthony's business. So in other circumstances, we probably would have never encountered each other on campus or in a classroom setting um, just because our background and our choices of career path are so different. Um, but I really think this merging is in, has, is more successful than something you'd find more traditionally. And it's really great because you guys get to bond over a common goal and see the value of the work you guys are doing. So can you just talk about the specifics of the yours' role in this project? Absolutely. So I am a member of the capacity building team. Actually, all three of us are. (laughs) (laughs) And what the capacity building team is, is what we're searching to do, what we're looking to do is help the village of Pacwatch, where we're based, directly. And um, one of the ways that we're doing that is, like I said, conducting a survey that will um, help classes in the future know exactly what that village is doing. Um, There are other teams that are in the classroom as well. Uh, We have a marketing team. We have uh, a business value value chain team. And then we have a data representation team. 
so what these teams are aimed to do are tackle problems that um, the solu- that the initiative has. So like our business value cha- value chain team is trying to come up come up with a sustainable shipping solution for us because shipping our wire art from Uganda to the United States is very expensive. Um, our graphical representation team is trying to come up, uh, gather all of our data and make it presentable so that when we report it to our funders and that kind of thing, um, it's legible and it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. How do you guys go about getting support? Because that is definitely essential for the work you guys are doing. Um, so we have some support from uh, grantors and funders. Um, there's private donations as well. And M- Michigan State University is a big um, partner for us. So uh, our co-director, um, Dr. Montgomery, is a professor here at Michigan State, and he's the one that um, started the initiative, along with Jutillo that I mentioned before. That's and, all. Oh, go ahead. Okay. Um, and then I just wanted to add really quickly that on top of the fundraising that we do, um, when we uh, sell a sculpture, that those funds go directly to creating more sculptures. So that was the one of the things that really drew me to Snares to Wears as well was the honesty and integrity of the program. There's when you look at large nonprofit organizations, there's it's very murky. There's a lot of not knowing where money goes. But with Snares to Wears, when it comes to the sculptures, that money is directly you can know it goes directly back to that village, which is really cool. And an important distinction to me is that um, when these artisans make pieces, they are paid upfront and per piece. So if someone makes a draft, they're given a set amount of money for that draft, and they don't have to wait whether or not that sculpture is sold or how long it takes to sell. They have that money beforehand. So that's very important. That's awesome. Are there different sizes? So can you get a sculpture that's, I don't know, a smaller one or a bigger one? So um, our products right now, we have we sell drafts, lions, and elephants, and those are probably like a pretty normal size, like maybe like a foot tall, um, probably less than that. Um, and then we have wall-mounted pieces, so like like a mask of like a, like an elephant or a giraffe, and those are more beaded, and they're pretty cool. Um, actually, last year we had two artisans come in, and uh, they made a life-size giraffe sculpture, which is actually here on campus in the IQ building, and it's very very cool. It's mounted on um, MSU Shadows wood, and it's it's like 17, 14, 17 feet tall. It's huge. Um, and right now we are also working on a life-size lion piece. Um, that will be in the Detroit Zoo this summer, and we can talk about that later. That's awesome. Again, this is WDBM East Lansing. I'm Stephanie here on Exposure, and we are talking to people that are part of the Snares to Wares group here on campus. So you guys have some events coming up. I've heard something about the Detroit Zoo. Yes, very exciting. So the Detroit Zoo event, we will be having our very own exhibit, the Snares to Wares um, exhibit. It will be opening May 8th, and it will be at the Detroit Zoo all summer long. So um, visitors to the zoo can learn about the life cycle of a snare and then to a wear, and then they can also learn about the class, and they can learn about, um, they can hear stories from artisans and see some of the different artworks that we've created over time. Yeah, it's been pretty great. Um, two artisans from Uganda flew in, um, and for the past couple months, they've been working on this lion sculpture. And the lion is called Butcherman. He's actually an individual lion in Uganda in Merchinson Falls National Park. He lost um, half of his back leg to a snare wire trap, um, and 
Oh, sorry, I got nervous. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> um, so with Butcher Man, um, snare traps don't discriminate. So you might be trying to get an antelope to bring home for bushmeat. But a lot of endangered animals like lions and giraffes and elephants that we've been focusing on actually get hurt as well. So he lost half of his back leg, which um, he was the alpha of his bride. So if they were able to do immediate surgery when they found him and his leg was healed. But if they hadn't found him, he would have lost his pride and all of his cubs in the pride would have been killed by the new alpha male. It's called infecticide. So with this sculpture, it's going to be Butcher Man and then his three cubs. And it really tells a story about, you know, what kind of impacts these snare traps are having. And we're just trying to visualize that story through this sculpture. And two of the artisans are here on campus right now working on it. And they're going to be at the Detroit Zoo. So people are able to make those connections when they see our exhibit. Have you guys been able to see the lion in progress? So, you know, it's at this point and then this point or... I have. Yeah. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm. It's it's huge. It's, it's it's crazy to think that these beautiful creatures are this large. But I got to see both a uh, miniature um, size that was used to kind of base the life-size version off of, mm-hmm. and then I got to see that in progress. And I have to say it's definitely worthy to come out to the Detroit, Detroit Zoo and see. Absolutely. And is there other events coming up or ways that the Lansing community can support you guys? Absolutely. So this Saturday, the Snares to Wears initiative will have a table at the Science Festival. And then we will be at the RIV on April 13th, where patrons will have an opportunity to engage with our initiative and help raise funds that will go towards needs in the village Pakwat, Uganda. And they'll be passing out wristbands, I understand. So Gotta get that. Snares to Wears wristband. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing. We also are going to be at the Chelsea Art Fair or Art Festival, which will be over the summer, July 26th and 27th. So that will be another opportunity to um, the, for the community to come out and buy the wares. We'll have all the different sculptures there. Yeah, and also a great way for students to get involved is um, the class will be running again next year. Um, there's the works of a club um, that, could, uh, that might be around in the fall. Um, and of course you can follow us on our social media account, um, at snares to wares, um, definitely give us a follow. Awesome. And if people want to join this class, what is the course name? Do we know? Um, it's, I think they're rebranding it right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I know FW 491 is one of them. That's, it's also if it doesn't IH, which is what I'm taking an upper level, um, it's I in just, the works, so you got to follow us to stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interdisciplinary, so there's different like code like codes for like whatever you want the cast account. The class to count as. Awesome. So it applies to everyone. Yeah. That is interested. All majors welcome. <laughs> right. And then for people that are interested, what is your favorite part of this class and why would you recommend it to others? My favorite part of this class is that I feel like I'm really able to make a difference. I feel like I've gained so much knowledge, like I was saying earlier, um, throughout my time at MSU, and now I'm actually able to apply it all. I've learned so much um, skills that will really benefit my future job. Um, a lot of teamwork, like actually like getting to post on like social media accounts that really matter, um, getting to reach out to people. 
there's so many skills that I've gained, and it also just taught me so much about conservation. I study um, sustainable parks, recreation, and tourism, so I thought I knew a lot about conservation until I took this class, and I've just learned so much through Bob Montgomery. He's been a really great professor. Yeah, it's very eye-opening. Um, one of the cool things we did this semester, we actually created the exhibit at Detroit Zoo. I don't know if that was emphasized, but like we made the storyboards and like we the pictures and all the words came from our group of students. So like that's going to Detroit at the zoo. So it's very cool. Like our impact is real. I would say for me, um, this class has definitely had huge impacts. It's even affected where I might end up after college. I. I came to MSU not knowing what I wanted to do, and then I fell in love with um, startups and creating businesses. But when I came to Snares to Wears, I hadn't fully discovered my love for helping others and my love for creating real impacts and working with businesses that um, give rather than take from the world. That's definitely important. And I believe you get to learn skills that you can take to a future career. Oh, yeah. So besides impacting those around you, you get to learn for yourself as well. So thank you guys so much for coming in. Again, for all of you listeners, these are this is Snares to Wares. They will be at the Detroit Zoo with their artwork and talking about the impact of snares and poaching and how to create a better life for people in Uganda. So if you're interested, I would follow them on social media at Snares to Wares. But thank you guys so much for coming in. Thank you yeah, for having thank us. You. Thank you. everyone you're listening to the sci-files an exposure segment featuring michigan state university student research we're your co-hosts chelsea Budu and daniel puentes today we're welcoming joelle soler joelle would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself please uh good morning chelsea and daniel uh thank you guys for having me here um i'm currently a phd candidate here at michigan state university and i work in the psychology department within the behavioral neuroscience program and this is my fifth and hopefully final year. Wow, so you're in your fifth year right now. That must mean that you're close to finishing your dissertation. Correct, yes. Yeah. So I'm, I'm set to defend within a month today, actually. Exactly a month today, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, crunch Exciting. time. Who, and who is your advisor? Uh, Dr. Lillian. Uh, she has an appointment in the psychology department as well as within the neuroscience program. Cool. And then what is the research that you're doing for your dissertation? So um, basically, my research efforts focus on determining how long-term environmental lighting conditions impact cognitive function. And we use a diurnal rodent model um, that to answer questions pertaining to how it affects the brain. I have a lot of questions, but how do you guys study this with the model that you have? Just to give a little bit more background as to why we, I, I make the disclaimer of that we use a diurnal rodent model instead of a traditional rodent model that are typically nocturnal is because, well, for the most part, we as humans, we have a predominantly diurnal activity pattern. So by using a diurnal, by utilizing a diurnal model, we hope that whatever findings that we, that we get, we obtain would be of higher translational value. 
So that's a word that you said a lot. What does diurnal even mean? Basically, diurnal means that the organism is primarily active during the day rather than at night. So the literal opposite of nocturnal. Okay, cool. So using this diurnal rodent model, and I'm wondering, what are you looking for whenever you're having these specific lighting? Like, are you looking at how the rats behave? Based on the uh, condition known as a seasonal affective disorder, I don't know if you guys have heard about seasonal affective disorder, but it's, it's a major depressive disorder that is very, uh, it's very related to the variations of lighting conditions with the seasons. So basically, depressive, uh, depressive episodes are mainly dur- circumscribed to the fall and winter months, and then these episodes remit during spring and summer, and that's tied to sunny days versus cloudy days, where cloudy days are during the fall and winter, and then sunny is during the spring and summer. And then basically a core morbid factor for seasonal affective disorder is that, you know, you have impaired learning and memory function. And one thing that we we saw is that there's a breadth in human studies that, that chronicle the beneficial effects of long-term bright lighting condition. But how exactly does this occur in the brain is not well understood. And that's why we're targeting how learning and memory occurs within a brain region crucial for learning and memory known as the hippocampus in the animal model that we're using. You brought up some interesting points. Both Danny and I are from Miami, Florida, so we haven't heard much about the disorder being where we're from because there's a lot of light over there. But when we came to Michigan, people were saying, you know, take your vitamin D because of the light and stuff like that. And I was wondering, do you look at vitamin D and does your light mimic the sun when you're with these rats? To answer your first question, we don't look at vitamin D, uh, basically because there hasn't been any causal role as of yet between vitamin D and cognitive function. But um, basically what we do with our rats is um, instead of asking them, because obviously they can't tell us, but um, we utilize a behavioral paradigm to assess learning memory dependent upon the hippocampus and um, the behavioral paradigm is known as the Morris water maze. And what it consists of is basically you have a pool and there's a platform just underneath the, the water level and it's opaque. The water is rendered opaque and the animal has to utilize external visual cues to, to learn the location of the platform. And after a couple of days of consecutive uh, training, um, we then basically assess reference memory within these animals by removing the platform. And if the animal learned correctly, it should uh, search for the platform in the goal quadrant for the majority of the time spent in that probe test. I'm kind of confused, honestly. You're telling me you put the rats on a platform that it's opaque and they have to find their way back through memory? Just imagine uh, basically a, a pool that's four by foot, four by five foot diameter. So it's a fairly big pool in comparison to the rat size. And then there's a, a substantially smaller platform inside of this pool. And it's just about two inches beneath the surface of the water level. And the water is rendered opaque so that they can't see the platform. Oh, and they have to figure out the way back through it. It's not the exactly. same as And using basically visual landmarks to, to help them navigate. Are there differences between the rats that were given a lot of light versus the rats that 
weren't exposed to as much light, and what does that mean? So um, basically we have a, uh, what we denominate as a chronic daytime light deficiency paradigm. And basically this consists of rats being housed for four weeks in one of two lighting conditions. Um, we have our BLD group, which stands for bright light dark cycle group, and our DLD group, which stands for dim light dark cycle group. And after we house these grass rats for four weeks in their respective lighting conditions, we see that um, rats in the BLD group outperform um, their dim light counterparts basically by spending twice or a little over twice the amount of time in the specific goal quadrant where the platform was located in comparison to the ones in dim lighting conditions. So it sounds like the rats that weren't in the dim light conditions were able to find this platform a lot quicker. Yes. What type of lighting do you guys use? Is it fluorescent light or white light? I know there's different types of lights. And have you guys looked at the different types? So um, we use, uh, um, so in, as far as color temperature goes, we go um, we utilize uh, cool white because it, it mimics um, the shorter wavelength light that is predominant in natural sunlight. And then we utilize LED just to not make the rats uncomfortable because fluorescent lighting tends to generate heat. Obviously, artificial lighting is not as intense as natural sunlight, but what we do is that we recreate um, their proportions between what constitutes a, a sunny day versus a, a cloudy day. So, um, fun fact, um, in Michigan, the, your average typical sunny day in July is around... Um, the lux intensity, that's the measurement for light intensity, um, is around 88,000 lux. And during a typical cloudy day in January, it's around 4,000 lux. So you have a, around a 20 to 1 ratio. And so we just replicate that ratio within the laboratory conditions. So our BLD group has a lighting intensity around 1,000 lux. And then our dim light group um, has a lighting intensity around 50 lux. So we just recreate the the proportional the proportions that we see here in this state so you're doing a comparison of what it would be like here in the state can this be applied to the rest of the united states it could be so seasonal affective disorder has um has a positive correlation with the farther you are from the equator the the higher the prevalence of this condition so usually States like in Michigan or even Alaska, if you go up a little higher, or most states in the northern parts of the Midwest or northern continental U.S. and farther Canada and stuff, that's where you see a lot of this condition. In Nordic countries as well, you see a very high prevalence. I'm still curious about the memory part. You mentioned the hippocampus earlier, and some of our listeners might not even know what the hippocampus is. Could you... Talk about more about your studies relating to that. Like, do you guys look at the brain afterwards? After all of our um, behavioral studies, we also take a look at what's, quote unquote, under the hood. So in the brain. And then um, basically, j just to spare uh, graphic details, um, basically, we, we extract the tissue. And um, through various preparation methods, we look at... Um, morphological structure within the hippocampus and then we also look at molecular biological molecular markers so one of the findings that we saw was that um, we saw a reduction 
in synaptic point contact. So basically how brain cells or neurons uh, communicate with one another are through synapses. And where these synapses land are these tiny structures called um, dendritic spines. So if you can try to make a mental picture, just try to picture that each neuron is, is sort of a tree, if you will. The cell body is the trunk and um, the dendrites are, are the branches and dendritic spines are leaves on the branches. And so synapses land on the branches. And what we see that what we see is that after four weeks of dim lighting conditions, there are, there's approximately a 30% reduction of dendritic spines in grass rats that are housed in dim lighting conditions. So that's 30 around 30% less effective synaptic communication that mirrors the behavioral deficits that, that, that I just explained to you guys. And then does this change the morphology of the hippocampus at all, or does it usually stay relatively the same? So the, the, the hippocampus a, a, as a whole, it stays relatively the same. It's at, it's, it's at the individual cell level that, that changes, but the, the integrity of the structure as a whole stays fairly the same. Is it only the hippocampus that you see that's affected? Do you only focus on that or do you take a section of the entire brain? We, we basically, my research only focuses on the hippocampus because we're, uh, we're very interested in hippocampal dependent learning and memory, but other areas of research that is done within our labs show that there are also changes within a brain region um, called uh, the dorsal raphe nucleus. And that's a brain region that's very um, responsible for emotion and, and depressive-like behaviors. So basically, we have this animal model of seasonal affective disorder, and chronic dim lighting conditions uh, induce a depressive-like phenotype and induce changes in the dorsal raphe. And then from that, I read that a lot of depressive disorders have a comorbid factor that they have cognitive um, impairments, and then that's how I, I, I came to do my research on the hippocampus. So at least for those two brain regions that we do see changes. How does your research apply to different therapies that are involved to help treat seasonal depression as a whole, such as here in Michigan then? Um, right now, the most utilized form of therapy is uh, bright light therapy. And what that consists of is basically individuals have a uh, SAD box, and basically seasonal affective disorder, its acronyms are SAD. So um, you have the SAD box that basically consists of you exposing yourself to a really bright light as soon as you wake up for 15 to 20 minutes in the morning. And that works for a subset of people that have seasonal affective disorder. But then there's also a, another subset that bright light therapy doesn't do much. So Currently, we're looking at how specific neurotransmitter systems can be used to um, generate pharmacological interventions to, to target that subset and generate, generate a new therapeutic strategy for this condition. I've seen online that people can buy a lamp that would basically mimic the sun and things like that. And I have plants that I put a light on, but the plants haven't been too well the whole winter. So I kind of compare it to that. And... The idea of giving myself really bright light 15 minutes in the morning just sounds horrible to me. I, I like to stay away from the light for a few minutes when I wake up. So my question is that do they 
have any other alternatives other than the sad box in the morning? Because what if you're like me, where you don't want to be blasted with light as soon as you're woken up? So that's pretty much the only effective method for treating seasonal affective disorder. When you're using bright light therapy, it's not just any regular um, bright light. You have to make sure that I it has to be cool white in the wider and in, in so in the shorter wavelength spectrum and it has to be a certain intensity. And at first, people are a little bit are a little bit aversive to it, but the learning and memory um, benefits and the cognitive benefits that that you get from it and overall your mood tends to tends to rebound in the in the population that does benefit from bright light therapy. So I'm not sure if this question was actually answered though. Yeah, I know. How how does your research help then? Like what will this pave the way for in the future? It it'll definitely help pave the way for pharmacological alter- alternatives where instead of using light, we can with just a application such as an intranasal spray or with a specific compound that that can be used. I'm also wondering does what you feed your rats affect how they act? For example, if I eat something for lunch today and eat something different tomorrow, I can feel completely different. So do you guys change their diets and do you have a specific diet for them? Their their diet is pretty much the same. We don't do anything different. We feed them standard um, uh, rodent chow. The, the, the food and, and the rations of the food are kept at a constant so we, I believe we got a pretty solid idea of what your research is involved with. Now, what motivated you personally to get involved with this research? I've always been drawn to researching learning and memory just because within the field of neuroscience, it's one of the more psychological aspects of neuroscience and also being able to ask certain questions that probably 50, 60 years ago was a little bit more abstract. And now there's novel methods to actually get into the nitty-gritty the the biological factors of learning and memory where you can do genetic manipulations to induce false memories and and stuff of that nature that that's part of the reason that really interested me and then originally hailing from puerto rico we don't get we don't have seasons it's mostly 80 degrees year-round and then my first year here that, that first january that hits you where it's doesn't you don't see light until at a.m. and already till at like three or four p.m. It's already dark and that definitely takes a toll on you if you're not used to it. So combining the two was definitely a a, a good way that not only you know satisfied my requirements but my gr- requirements in the degree, but also something that I was passionate about. I'm sorry, I want to take a step back. You just said false memories that you can give someone false memories. Can you, can you please talk about that? So, so actually, there's a TED Ed um, episode uh, about this. So basically, um, I'll try to avoid um, jargon as much as I can. But there's um, a, ner- uh, a, me- a method, uh, a technical method in neuroscience that um, is called optogenetics. And basically, what this is, is that you introduce an artificial receptor in the brain and use light to activate or inhibit the receptor. So you're basically activating a signaling pathway or inhibiting a signaling pathway. And in rodents, in a behavioral paradigm where you induce a, a shock to, uh, to, to create a fear memory, 
Um, they use a totally naive animal that's never been exposed to this kind of training, and they activate that pathway, and it displays uh, the same response. But it never even went the shock. So in that case, it's a false memory. Thanks so much, Joel, for joining us. As we near the end of our show, is there any advice that you would provide to any of our listeners that are thinking about going into science but may not be sure if this is something they're interested in pursuing or not? Yeah. Um, so basically, if you feel that science is one of uh, one of your school subjects that you do best at or you not necessarily do best at but also have the, the majority of your interest, I say um, the key to it is persistence. Um, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have days where you feel that progress uh, feels that it's never going to come. But the the key to success, I believe, in, in science is basically persistence and, and never forgetting why you want it to get into it in the first place. And usually people in the scientific community, as long as you display a genuine interest, they're always willing to help. And, and the community itself is is very collaborative and people are always willing to help you out. Did you always knew that you wanted to do science? Uh, no, I did not. Um, so honestly, um, when I was in high school, uh, like a majority of students, I didn't know what I wanted to study. Um, so I started out as a chemistry major because I thought I was going to go to pharmacy school. And then three years in, I'm like, I don't like chemistry. And then I switched, and then I, I decided to double major in pharmacology and psychology, sort of to to get at the psychopharmacology, how um, how medications such as um, SSRIs that are used for depression impact behavior and how it affects the brain and stuff. So nearing the end of my undergraduate education is where I really got interested in neuroscience. But before then, I didn't have much of a clue. Thanks a lot for sharing that with us, Joam. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles.